Hello, and welcome to the initial podcast of Margins with Dr. Christopher Witt. I'm Christopher Witt, and uh, we're here to have conversations with change agents. Uh, Today for our initial podcast, we are joined by Reverend Dwight Ford and Berlinda Tyler Jamison. I will allow them to introduce themselves, and we'll let the conversation begin. Well, thank you, Dr. Witt. Glad to be with you. Uh, as already intimated, I'm Reverend Dwight Ford, and I have the, the great and grand privilege of pastoring a wonderful church entitled Grace City Church. And I spend a lot of my time organizing uh, in the local community through an initiative entitled Critical Mass. Thanks for having me. And my name is Berlinda Tyler Jameson, as you said, and I want to thank you also uh, for inviting uh, me to participate in this. It truly is my honor. Uh, I am a retired healthcare executive who is now repurposed um, as the president of the Rock Island County NAACP. That branch is a very active, engaged branch. Uh, we're very proud of the work that we do, and we have much more to do. It's my pleasure to have you all here. And the three of us have had opportunities to work together, either as a trio or with <laughs> other groups of people or uh on a one-on-one basis uh, in things involving the NAACP, the Quad City Empowerment Network, sometimes in my role as a political science professor at Augustana College. So I think that when we start to talk about things uh, between the three of us, we really start thinking on our community in terms of a focus, but also thinking about things that really can be used across the nation uh, because we end up really thinking about our people in solidarity without having these political boundaries of states and cities and all of those things. And one of the things that really has been pressing on my mind is this whole idea of personal responsibility politics. We we hear a lot of it uh, being thrown around sometimes within communities of color, sometimes from the outside towards communities of color, but a lot of times the personal responsibility rhetoric that gets the most light of day ends up being rhetoric without the addition of talking about structures. And I think when you end up talking about personal responsibility without structure, you really do a disservice to people who may be in need of help, assistance, anything of that nature. And I'm just wondering, what do you all think about that when we have these conversations of personal responsibility without really looking at structural issues or systemic issues alongside with that? You know, I think it's very easy um, to throw out the, the requirement that would be personally responsible. I mean, that's a very easy thing. It's Chris, um, you're a young African-American man, you have some personal responsibility um, for what's happening to you. You're absolutely right. If they don't understand it systemically, um, if there's no solutions or right. any kinds of, of actions that change the system, um, then all you're doing is talking. And all, in essence, you end up doing is blaming the victim, if you will. And it's easy, mm-hmm. easy, easy to do that. So, you know, certainly when people say that to me, I hear a lot about mutual responsibility and personal responsibility. You know, mm-hmm. what does that mean? You know, you've got to really talk to me more about that and put that in some context. Absolutely. I think what our country has been used to doing is myth-making, and the, the, the entirety of the myth has been that uh, we are where we are today because we are the rugged individual that had pulled ourselves up by our bootstraps and not looking at major policies and privileges that were aligned 
that allow people to enjoy the prominence and power and the opportunity that many of them do today. I think the highest level of insult to injury that could even be managed to come out of an individual's mouth is what's happening even now in Chicago, a city that all of us frequent, all of us have loved ones and friends there. And there is enormously great work being done on the street. People are pushing back against the violence and the mayhem and some of the challenges. But what's not getting talked about is the mass school closures. What's not being talked about is the ghettoization of an entire uh, south and west side of Chicago that happened when redlining was at its highest. You know, so what's not being talked about are the structures that facilitate some of the chaos, Mm -hmm. the anger, the despondency, the nihilism, the hatred, the frustration that people see um, so vividly in cameras and here on audio tapes. You know, and and that's a wonderful example. Um, And certainly um, those same dynamics that you just described Mm -hmm. certainly can be applied to Baltimore. Oh, without question. uh, Ferguson. Yes. To parts of New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly can be applicable all over, and if there, and I, I have to believe that there is a model um, with a, some sort of a structure that can be applied across those mm-hmm. cities or those communities um, or any community to to really affect change in quality of life. You yes. know? so I really do have to believe that. Yeah. A lot of times when we hear people kind of throw out that personal responsibility yeah. card, they end up not really thinking about the past that led to the moment that we may be in at that moment. Mm -hmm. And they also don't think about, from a structural standpoint, what it would actually take to make real change. Mm -hmm. So they'll tell someone, you know, on the south side of Chicago, right here in Rock Island, anywhere, any of these cities that we've mentioned, well, if only they pull up their pants. So if only they would... Uh, ascribed to a different form of speaking or things of that nature, then everything would be okay. But that's when you have to ask the question, really, is that you're going to pull up your pants and all of a sudden jobs are going to pour back into the community. We're going to overcome structural racism. We're going to overcome classism. We're going to overcome that person's 12 years of education that was subpar. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really an unrealistic view of things. And you're looking at that past, and then you're also missing out on on what opportunities they're missing out on. Yeah, and the question to them should be, um, if you're talking about pull yourself up by your bootstraps um, and and doing these things in isolation, um, you know, then the question to that person is, so what's your responsibility in this? You know, it's Mm -hmm. not just what yours is, Dwight, Mm -hmm. uh, but what's your responsibility? What's our collective responsibility? Um, And you've got to dig deep here, too, and look at some things as well. You know, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm waiting for the next person to say that to me. So I can say, <laughs> what's your responsibility? So, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, Rabbi Prince said it best. Uh, few are guilty and were guilty. All are responsible. Mm-hmm. And what we try to do so often is try to figure out how to divorce ourselves from the challenges within our communities and wipe our hands clean of it and just say, well, that's their issue as if we don't believe problems and challenges have bus passes. Mm -hmm. Oh, I like that. So they travel in what we don't deal with today and what we don't confront today. We'll see again in another zip code. We'll see again in another another state. And that's why you're you're, um, bringing to light of saying the same things that we see in Baltimore and Chicago, uh, places in Atlanta, uh, that if problems are transportable, 
then surely solutions can be too. Absolutely true. And we just have to mine those diamonds and uh, put a a stamp on them and make sure they arrive at the right address. I agree. I think sometimes when we we have people divorce structure from personal responsibility and only focus on personal responsibility, they miss out on opportunities to really engage in compassion and empathy. Mm -hmm. When you really take a look and say, well, I want to help individuals to maybe claim personal responsibility while also examining and fighting against issues within systems, that's really showing a certain level of understanding. But one of the things that kind of stands out is a lot of times people, sometimes even regardless of race, they forget to really recognize their own privilege. That people could be of many different racial or ethnic backgrounds, but maybe due to education, due to socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. due to benefits that have been given to them by previous generations within their families, they as individuals may have the opportunity or they may have the privilege Mm -hmm. to maybe if they as an individual pull up their pants or if they as an individual Mm -hmm. make a slight change in the way they approach society, things change for them. And they may not take the time to have that compassion or that empathy for people who don't have those options, for Mm -hmm. people who don't have the privilege to make a simple, quick change and really see big benefits. Mm -hmm. If you're living in a a destitute circumstance and maybe it ends up being destitute or void of support, void of opportunity, void of so many different things that really make us as humans whole, Mm -hmm. then really you're not in a privileged situation to make changes in that way. Would you all agree with that? Absolutely agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. I don't think there's anything I could add to that. I I don't think what uh, what we're saying to anyone is that personal responsibility is not a part of. It's absolutely. But when when it becomes primary to the solving of major challenges, then um, we're fooling ourselves. I think how do we keep connected with a suffering, a teetering class, a, um, a, a class of people that are struggling to make it up one leg on the ladder, is to think like Malcolm X. Malcolm X said, no matter how much respect you show to me as an individual, unless you show the 22 million at that time, mm-hmm. black Americans, that same amount of respect, you have shown me no respect at all. Mm-hmm. What if we thought about ourselves as connected and thought about how other people are being treated, getting back to that empathy and saying, it's okay for you to treat me this way because, hey, I've learned how to manage and navigate an educational system. I now have a well-paying job with great benefits. I can move to the other side of town if I want to. Mm -hmm. But we're still connected to humanity. And I think that if we find these little silos, yeah, we can move our families individually forward, but we have lost so much in the process. See, and I think personal responsibility, that's beautifully stated. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that personal responsibility, when you're talking about, you know, you got to fix this problem, it's your responsibility to Mm -hmm. do it. You really are talking about a societal issue. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're saying to me, for example, Belinda, that's your personal problem, when in fact, it's society's problem. So don't tell me that I have to solve society's problem by myself without a system or a structure there. That's, like, that's what James Baldwin would always say <laughs> when they were confronted with the so-called Negro problem mm-hmm. in America. <laughs> He's like, the, the Negro doesn't have a problem. And what he was pushing back on is saying, mm-hmm. y'all got a problem. Mm-hmm. The structures are in place. Mm-hmm. The prejudice is at all time high. That's the racism right. is ever abounding. And so it's just not black people changing behavior. Uh, it is also the predominant, uh, predominant class changing behavior as well. Mm-hmm. So I think those are kind of ways that we can kind of move toward each other without 
vilifying and demonizing those that are caught in the throes of challenge right now. Yeah, and and without vilifying or demonizing those that are not. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. I don't think I don't I don't think we get anywhere looking for the devil in the story. No. If you always try to look for the villain and make sure that you figured out who got the pitchfork and horns, what we're trying to do is get to a solution. Yeah. And if we do that, and if we uncover evil intention, then we'll deal with That's it. That's right. Um, but if we have just a gap in communication, relationship, then let's figure out how to bridge that. Let's figure out how to work together because we can't spend the rest of our hum- humanity uh, fighting against one another. We'll lose so much. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where it really comes down to a, a few things that, that I try to emphasize when I'm talking to students or when I'm talking mm-hmm. to any types of audiences. This whole idea of really recognizing people's humanity fully mm-hmm. allowing for our fellow humans, our fellow citizens, <laughs> mm-hmm. to really be human, yeah. to recognize them not because, I mean, one example, I had a conversation with some students the other day, and we were talking about um, one of the things that really gets me upset is when you hear people go on to news shows or other venues and you hear men talk about the fact that they're, they're against violence against women, discrimination against women, whatever it may be, because they have a daughter, because they have a mother, whatever else, as if to say if they didn't have any women close to them in their lives that they couldn't recognize the humanity mm-hmm. of a woman. And it, should, it shouldn't matter who you have close to you. And the same thing would apply to socioeconomic class, sure. to race or anything else mm-hmm. that I would hope that we could get to a point where people could recognize one another's humanity, regardless if you knew, know people who look like this person or not, or have shared experiences. And then when you recognize shared humanity, that mm-hmm. opens the door for people to have real ownership. Ownership in a community, ownership in an institution, ownership mm-hmm. in this country that maybe you don't have as much as the next person, but you feel that that country, that community, that institution is as much yours as the next person. Mm-hmm. But we run into issues with those two uh, things when we talk about humanity and ownership, because so many times we try to devalue mm-hmm. other people's humanity or try to dehumanize them, or we try to sometimes put an asterisk next to someone else's ownership. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, you're a member of this institution or this community, but mm-hmm. you don't pay as much taxes or you don't exactly have the same right. status or you don't have this, that, or the other, as opposed to allowing people to be on the same level simply because they're people. Yeah. How do you all feel about that I agree that type with of... that. I sat here the whole time listening to you thinking, boy, that's wonderful. How do we do it? Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a long road to get there. But... Uh, yeah, how do, how do we help find the point of empathy for everybody? How do we um, move forward? I mean, how do we make yeah. the connection? I was sitting here, and it's a smaller example, but I was sitting here thinking about uh, the days years ago when I got a rape crisis program started okay. in the Quad Cities. And one of the things I was struck with was that the women who were sexually assaulted bought off on the stereotypes as much as the men did. Sure. And the way we helped to get, in this instance, the law enforcement, which at that time was, I mean, I won't even go into any detail, but but at that time, uh, law enforcement was certainly not sympathetic. They were certainly not empathetic to victims. Mm -hmm. Um, They certainly were very interested in unfounding a case Mm -hmm. until we started engaging them in some exercises and some training Mm -hmm. around rape victims to try to build a point of empathy. Um, And it took years to get 
to a place where both the woman who was a survivor um, and the law enforcement officer and the state's attorney all felt like they were on the same team together. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. It, but it took a while it was finding that point of empathy. Yeah. But I think we did that almost by luck. <laughs> um, you know, it was yeah. luck. You know, I didn't, you know, we weren't sure that those exercises uh, were going to work or that the education they were getting was going to work mm-hmm. or me going into police departments at, at one o'clock in the morning sure. uh, was going to work. But it did. But it took a while. So, yeah. yeah. And I think the more we can experiment uh, with humanity and democracy and how do we become a fully integrated community where we understand each other at a much higher rate rather than having someone always considered to be the other? Mm-hmm. Society is set up in, in such an awkward way that at least at least here in this nation, it's a meritocracy and people you know appreciate hard work, so to speak. So how does a person achieve? Then that means I outscore someone else. Mm-hmm. How do we rate humanity? It's because I score higher than the other person. Mm-hmm. So the fact that we can say, well, this person doesn't pay taxes and fully understanding that they're going to the local grocery store every day and spending money and investing and they got a pickup truck and they got. So let's not let's not fool ourselves. Mm -hmm. So we do that to jockey for a position. And unfortunately, when we have set up a society that has been based upon competition and not so much completion, this is the result that we get. And it's even when it's a win-loss total sum, when we're dealing with politics and then we realize that the party that's in power currently is not our power. So we have to figure out a way to make people lose so that we can feel like we won mm-hmm. and not realizing that the African proverb still is prominent in my mind that when elephants fight, it is the grass that suffers. Mm-hmm. So it is our citizenship. It is our communities that suffer because we can't figure out how to work together long enough to pull something off yeah, major sure. for humanity. You know, I think that's beautiful. And I think that um, what underscores all of that, a lot of that, is that in this country, uh, right or wrong, we view things in zero sum terms. That's exactly right. You know, it's zero sum. Yeah, exactly. You know, right. and so if you've got it, and I I don't have it because you know, and and I need to have it, but that means you lose it. That's right. You, you take it from <laughs> take it from someone else, and it, it's a, it's unfortunate because again, the systems that we have in place, even for the simplest understandings of how we move up ladders, is through a merit based society. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But when you're talking about empathy and love and consideration. I'm a gospel preacher. That's a meritless love. I don't love because a person deserves it because I've received a meritless love. And so it's countercultural for people to think in it otherwise. And I'm not saying merit and hard work doesn't have its place. Uh, Don't misconstrue what we're trying to communicate. But the idea that a person cannot be afforded humanity because they voted differently There's a reason, I was talking to a group of people just last week, there's a reason why a majority of black folks uh, cringe when they hear states' rights. Mm -hmm. I mean, and some people just, people say states' rights. So when when we hear states' rights, it takes us back to a place where we knew what states' rights meant. It meant that we could be legally terrorized. And no one steps in and in, intervenes right. under that state's authority. Yeah, we we right. have a shared history. We have a shared memory. <laughs> and that memory is not just passed down in the schoolhouse. These are memories that are passed down through our families. Mm-hmm. That 
when you talk about something like a state's rights, that opens the door to so many stories yeah. that I've heard within my own family. Mm-hmm. You know, take the PhD and all of that stuff out of that. These are just family That's stories right. in terms of family members having to make a run from certain towns and cities right. to try to make a better way and, and reach back to family members and things of that nature. And those things are real. And a lot of times people who maybe come from groups that have faced oppression in the past, a lot of times are asked to disconnect themselves from that. So if you are talking about uh, black folks in the United States who maybe are the result of the Great Migration, Mm -hmm. if we're talking about um, Mexican-Americans who had the border cross their families years ago, if we're talking about immigrant groups who maybe are only one or two generations in, a lot of times we forget that people can't just erase that memory. Mm -hmm. They can't just erase these things that have happened. And it's for our good as a nation, our good as a people here in the United States to not get rid of those histories because how are we supposed to move forward if we don't have a base to stand on? And that base may have some good in it. It may have Mm -hmm. some bad in it. But I think as individuals, you want to know your good and bad. So wouldn't you want to know the good and bad for the nation and communities also? That's the only way you learn. Stories matter. Yes. And histories matter. Um, They help us to see and navigate through very dark times in our national history. They give us insight, a pattern, how to think about the future. And when we submerge those and try to package them and place them in some dark corner of the closet, we miss out on that which is valuable. And when we reduce individual stories, um, if you've ever had to work across rural America, there's a certain narrative. People are afraid. They're depopulating small towns. Major corporations are not looking to relocate that. The children are not taking over the family business or the farm. Right. So all of a sudden now the talk is that we're going to get a new state penitentiary, $65,000 paychecks coming in, benefit packages. So one community is celebrating a new prison, mm-hmm. and the other is filled with shock and chagrin. Yeah. But when you understand what people are up against, This is the reality of our nation. And we have to figure out how to tell the stories enough. And it doesn't mean we have to agree. We never walk into a a relationship with the idea that I'm going to work with this group of people based upon agreement. We have to work with people based upon our understanding. Because if all we're looking for is agreement, then we're bailing off of each other as soon as we get in realize we don't think alike at all. There's no use of me even finishing the dialogue because I don't agree. But why do they think that way? Why does a person say big, uh, big government is good and another person say smaller government is better? There's a story behind it. There's a history. There's benefit behind it. There's privilege associated with it. There's fears associated with it. There's hopes. And unless we unpack that, doesn't mean I have to agree with everything that's presented. You won't agree with everything I present. The issue is do we understand each yeah. other? And when, and when we have a certain level of collective understanding, we open the door for more of a possibility for collaboration. Mm-hmm. Whereas if we don't, if those rural families, let's say in Iowa, where they're, they're having less and less opportunities available to them. So they have, of course, you're always going to have a certain number of family members, people of a community who are going to sign up for the armed forces because they want to. It's right. going to be a family tradition. It's just the mm-hmm. career that they choose. But there are also a number of people mm-hmm. in some of these rural areas that they maybe don't do it because they choose to. It's because they don't have other options. Funny enough, 
you end up seeing, let's say you go down 80 to south side of Chicago, west side of Chicago, where maybe the people may look a little bit different. Mm -hmm. But in terms of lack of opportunities, uh, various economic options being taken away, they're facing some similar circumstances. And they also have high rates Mm -hmm. of people moving beyond the numbers that you would generally get with people joining the armed forces because they want to. They feel that they feel compelled to do so. Mm -hmm. So you end up having these families that are facing so many similar situations right. at home, yeah. facing so many similar situations with their sons and daughters in harm's way, who knows where, mm-hmm. yet they really don't have the tools in place for collaboration because they haven't been provided the opportunity for collective understanding of yeah. the fact that, yes, maybe we're racially different, maybe mm-hmm. we're religiously different, maybe we have a different view out of our window, but look at this long list of the things that we do right. share. Mm-hmm. And without having that, a lot of times we're able to have division come from on high mm-hmm. as opposed to being able to work together you know, across the levels that we're at. I mean, how do you all feel about that in that context as well as here in our community? Yeah, I was just going to say, I hadn't really thought about the fact that um, I never made the connection between the rural experience Mm -hmm. and what people in smaller towns are feeling and what people on East 65th Street in Mm -hmm. Chicago Mm -hmm. are feeling. You know, they're having the same kinds of experiences. They're expressed in some of the same kinds of ways. I never made that connection. I'm just sitting here Mm -hmm. saying, oh, that's an epiphany for me. Um, So so thank you for that. Uh, Because I really hadn't thought of that before. I mean, and I'm sure that there's lots of folks in both of those communities and anywhere in between that really don't make those connections. Mm -hmm. And it makes it a lot easier for political mm-hmm. leaders to divide, That's for right. for right. various That's people right. who have an agenda, That's let's say right. in talk radio or wherever they may be, mm-hmm. to divide as opposed to looking and saying, well, okay, what are things that we share? And yes, we're not going to agree on everything, but what That's can right. we work together yeah, on? Yeah, and what's the superordinate goal yeah. that we can all work toward that if we don't work together um, that neither one of us are going to get? That, mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. And they're just as, as afraid the community will collapse, that there's not enough resources as inner city communities. The the, the, the um, example I gave with the prison moving to a rural community. Thompson. Right. Mm-hmm. So then you end up having people saying it's community economic development. Mm-hmm. And we know that those prisons are going to be filled up. Yeah. I've yet to see one built, finished, and start its occupancy that hasn't been filled to capacity. I hope I do see it in my lifetime. I hope I see them closed down. But so when you hear people say, well, you have all these people, obviously they're doing something wrong. Obviously they're they're criminal by nature or you wouldn't have so many people in prison. Does mass incarceration say or speak to the issue of criminality or does it speak to the issue of the way we use the justice system? Yeah, what's fair and just. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, so not, the number of people more, inside but, yeah. prisons that have mental illness, Mm -hmm. the number of people inside prisons that are there because of uh, addiction. But yet in our minds, and how many families have not been touched by addiction? Yeah, or mental illness. Or mental illness. So these are the things that people can understand. It's just one is getting picked up, processed, and standing before a judge or jury and getting sentenced. But the other one is getting medicalized Mm -hmm. in treatment and help. Mm-hmm. And one is being criminalized. That's true. 
And so the more you bring up returning citizens and people that have been incarcerated, because you get in your people get in their head this felony, and you think of people with horns, and we don't realize how easy it is to get a felony. And the more you talk to people, regardless of their race and their class, the more that you confront the issue face forward without trying to hurt the humanity of another person, they come out of the shadows and say, you know what? My brother has been to jail. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. My, my sister had a problem. My uncle was incarcerated. Mm-hmm. My dad. And these are people that have well-paying jobs. These are people that have power and prominence. They won't say it publicly, but the more you deal with those issues, the more it comes out because they are finally seeing that the folk that they generally criminalize in their mind is the same folk I have in my family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a, that's an interesting way to get to the point of empathy. Yeah. And a lot of times you end up having folks who haven't taken the time to really recognize the ways in which our political structures through various policy decisions have made the reality that we live with now mm-hmm. with mass incarceration. As you were speaking, I was thinking about the fact that I was born in the late 70s, so my entire lifespan mm-hmm. has seen this growth of this yeah. prison industrial complex mass incarceration because we see this increase in sentencing mm-hmm. for various drug crimes, nonviolent crimes. At the same time, we see the development of private prisons. And when That's these right. private prisons make these contracts with the federal government or state governments, they have certain occupancy mm-hmm. requirements. And we start to see three strikes in your out programs right. and so many different things mm-hmm. around the nation mm-hmm. where more and more people were being ushered mm-hmm. into this prison system and we're seeing the as you said mm-hmm. prisons being used as a replacement for industry mm-hmm. and other right. types of things so we see all of these things coming together but a lot of times people not only don't take the time to see the humanity or relate their family story to the stories of others they don't take the time to really put together all of these elements of public policy that they simply look at the prison that's in their community Mm -hmm. and they don't see that their prisons just like it in communities all around the nation. They don't see that once those prisons were built and families from inner city America started Mm -hmm. saying, well, maybe we should move closer to our loved ones. That's when you started Mm -hmm. to have prisoner rotation systems where you didn't want those families to move out and benefit Mm -hmm. and what was going on. So I think that we kind of, our conversation comes all the way back around Mm -hmm. to some of the things that we ended up starting to talk about where we were really talking about this idea of personal responsibility without structure. Mm -hmm. And it's been woven through everything that we've talked about Mm -hmm. that if we don't have those two things together and really put forth some effort to understand the dynamics of both and how they interplay, then we're really not having real empathy. We're not really having real compassion. And I don't think we grow. We, we don't. You know, what keeps coming to mind, and I'm trying not to be a cynic here, um, but what keeps coming to mind is that as a country or as a society, um, we really run the risk of becoming morally bankrupt. You know, when you... Right. Yeah, we're morally bankrupt. We're, we're, right. we're really down that continuum, and we keep going down that continuum. And I found myself just thinking about the whole pr- prison system, yes. you know, and how it's incentivized to put people in prison. Yeah. Uh, and where is that coming from? Mm-hmm. You know, and you think about that. I'm, I'm really getting real concerned about it because I really think that we're at, at some risk here. Mm-hmm. You know, and particularly what, what's going on in the country today. You mm-hmm. know, look at all the things that are happening today. Um, I was just reading this article um, and it was talking about the number of active 
active hate groups in yes. this country. Yes. And in what last year, no, year before last, in 2015, there were 892 active hate groups. This in 2016, 917 active hate mm. groups. 33 of them are in Illinois. Hmm. You know, and that's one of the larger ones okay. uh, for that. And it's like, you know what's driving this? You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's obviously racism, but um, the fact that we're so willing to step back and not get engaged or to allow that to happen or to look at that and do like, that's moral bankruptcy. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm real concerned about it. So, mm -hmm. so replenish me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's why the work is so meaningful. And whatever portions of the vineyard we're, we're called to provide service and help, it's the work that we do and the work that we do in and among so many others is so ne needed because what people end up saying all the time, I would love to do what you're doing, but I don't know where to get started. Where do I start? Mm -hmm. uh, there's so many things seem like it's going wrong in the nation, you know, the rise of, of, of vitriol and hatred and venom. Um, from places that we didn't see coming. Uh, the yeah. mass incarceration continues to build, and we're thinking about whether or not there's going to be criminal justice continued reform uh, with the new administration. We're asking serious questions about the state of education, particularly within um, inner-city communities and knowing the, the rates of challenge there. Health care, you know, yeah. where your zip code determines how long you live. Mm -hmm. And these are these are some major challenges. Right. And how do we turn uh, the hands back in a different direction? How do we bend that moral arc of the universe toward what is right? And I think this is where the championing of causes and asking people to query themselves and have introspection as you think about what should frustrate you as being human, regardless of your political persuasion, regardless of your, your current class, your pedigree, the pieces of the alphabet behind your name, that somewhere down the line we have to see ourselves as part of humanity and force ourselves to do something about it. Stop the kitchen table conversation when it's going in a bad direction. Challenge our young people in our families. Help our seniors and those that have lived through the horrid places of our society not to live with those current stereotypes. And there are so many prevailing stereotypes that if I say a few words, our minds see in picture. If I say the word thug, if I say the word criminal, if I say the word welfare recipient, our minds have been tailored to think of an individual that has been permeated in our minds as because of the stereotypical images that we are consciously and unconsciously say, uh, sucking life. in every day. If I say a business owner, if I say entrepreneur, and if you're only seeing one race, if you're only seeing one gender, if you're only seeing one ethnicity, you, my friend, are a part of the challenge mm -hmm. in America. Yeah, and so what you're talking about is unconscious. Bias. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, now you've kind of given me some hope here. Okay, so now I'm going to stretch out this, this other way here because with all of the moral bankruptcy that I'm afraid of, um, you know, and, and all of that, then I was thinking, yeah, things are not great, but um, what is happening is that we are really galvanizing um, kind of a, a loyal opposition mm. to that kind of uh, immorality, mm. okay? We really are. You know, I'm, I'm real hopeful about some of that, you know? And if that can be sustained, you know, um, that's hopeful for me. Yeah. But, yeah, it's hopeful. So you help me yes. with that, Reverend. Thank <laughs> I think you. we help each other. Thank you, Reverend. <laughs>
I, I want to thank both of you. I want to thank Belinda Tyler Jamison of the Absolutely. Rock Island County NAACP. I want to thank Reverend Dwight Ford of Grace City Church in Rock Island, Illinois. And I know that each of you have many other uh, things that I could add behind your names, but I want to thank both of you for this conversation. And I want to thank all of the listeners for listening to us have our conversation. And I hope that you all will come back in the future because so many things that you've talked about, we can definitely unpack a whole lot more. And I really hope that this conversation really has done a lot for people in terms of seeing that there are people and issues on the margins that we really need to pay attention to and really bring them in from those margins. So thank you once again. Thank Thank you for having me. Thank you.